We are back to the book of Judges this morning. If you'll find your place in the 12th chapter, we're going to begin in verse 8 and work through the end of the 13th chapter. We've arrived at those chapters that deal with Samson. Chapters 13 through 16 record for us his life, what he did, his death. Who here doesn't know something about Samson? He's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, that verse that we have referenced several times over. He is the last of the judges to be mentioned there in that verse by the writer of Hebrews. The biblical record of Samson is really fascinating. He reached tremendous heights, but he also fell into great sin. And in that, he is like many of the biblical characters. He's like David. He's like others that we see experience the grace of God and fall headlong into sin. And so as we consider him this morning, we're going to look at what we will call his nativity story. Um, It's interesting to see the parallels here with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, even Jesus, the announcement to Hannah that she is going to have a child, or any of the other barren women in the Old Testament that was revealed to them that they would have a child. This account fits nicely right into that, that pattern. Before we get into the account of Samson's birth and his announcement, we need to finish up chapter 12. There are three obscure names in verses 8 through the end of the 12th chapter. They are Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Three judges of whom we know very little. And it seems to be the pattern of judges, doesn't it? We'll, we'll hear the mention of one name, maybe two, have a chapter or two concerning one of the judges, and then have another mention. And all of this reminds us of the wisdom of God in his ordering of Scripture. Perhaps we would not have have done it this way, but then we would have messed everything up, wouldn't we? And so I want you to look just briefly at these three judges and what is said about them. Beginning in verse 8 of Ibzan, it says of him that he was of Bethlehem, And he judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then he died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years, and he died and was buried. Verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel for eight years, and then he died. Three unknown, obscure men. Perhaps not much is said of them because of their faithfulness and the skill with which they judged the land. 
Even that is conjecture on my part. The, the reason that we don't know much about them is because in the wisdom of God, he didn't tell us much about them. But I think it's helpful for us if we understand what's taking place before and after. It's been a last week we were in the Proverbs and looked at verses from Proverbs that dealt with motherhood. But the week before that, we dealt with Jephthah. Remember him and the vow that he made, how he had one daughter and his rash vow and his carrying through that rash vow and my assumption reading the scriptures plainly is that he sacrificed his daughter. But then in contrast to him, we have these two men. One of them had 60 children, 30 sons, 30 daughters. The other, in verse 13, had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And Matthew Henry says concerning these Contrasts. He says, what a difference there is between the families of Ibzan and Jephthah. Jephthah, excuse me, Isben had 60 children, all of them married. Jephthah had one daughter that lived or died unmarried. Some are increased, others are diminished. Both are the Lord's doing. Throughout Scripture, when we read things like this, we're taught that we have to trust providence. And agree that the Lord does all things well. And we have to learn contentment. You remember, remember what Paul says. He says, I have learned to be content. Contentment is a lesson to learn and a hard one at that, but one that the grace of God can surely teach. It's always dangerous for us to compare ourselves. I mean, just lay these two men, one in one side, one on the other. Jephthah has one daughter. Isben has 60 children. Manoah's wife, who would be Samson's mother, was barren until the Lord announced to her, that she would have a child. So it's always dangerous for us to compare ourselves, especially with what the Lord is doing for someone else. That usually always only leads to discouragement or resentment or something of the like. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 12, I'm going to paraphrase all of this, but you can read this on your own if you wish. In Acts chapter 12, there is what one author has called a marvelous providence and a mysterious providence in the same chapter concerning two men, both disciples, both highly used of the Lord. One's name is Peter, the other's name is John. The beginning of Acts chapter 12, Herod kills John with the sword. Let's go ahead and look there because I do want to read that first verse. Acts chapter 12. Excuse me, I said John. He killed James with the sword. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand 
to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. If you skip down a few verses, you'll find that he arrested Peter because it pleased the people. And the church prayed for Peter, and the Lord miraculously or marvelously released Peter from prison, and he arrives at the prayer meeting, and those praying for him don't even believe what they've seen or what they are seeing. How do you explain what the Lord did for Peter and what he did not do for James? Same chapter, both useful. Would it not have made sense to our minds that James could have gone on and done much and been very useful to the kingdom and done this or that and then proven to be immensely fruitful for the kingdom of God? But yet, the Lord allowed him to be killed by the sword of Herod. Peter, far different story. So there we see the folly of comparison and how we can fall into great despair. We have to settle in our minds that God's providence is mysterious and what the Lord does for you, he may not do for me. And that works the other way, doesn't it? What the Lord does for me, he may not do for you. What the Lord did for Ibsen, he did not do for Jephthah and vice versa. And that's all perfect. I have a good friend I haven't seen in years, but he was preaching once, and I think from this pulpit years ago, and he had one daughter. And he said, people would always come up and ask me about my children. And I would say, well, I'm, I, he had one son. He said, they would always ask me about my children. And I would tell them about my son. And they would say, is that all the children you had? And he would say, yes, I have one son. And usually people would say, well, that's okay. And he said, I began over time to reply, no, that's perfect. That son is whom the Lord gave me. And I'm content with that. We desired more for years, but the Lord didn't give. And this one child is God's perfect will for my life. And I'm trusting in his providence. What despair he and others could fall into if we are comparing ourselves in any way with what the Lord does for one person, raising them up to some great place of service, and then we begin to expect that ourselves, then we are setting ourselves up for a great fall. Here's what I think we can learn, Lord helping us, if he gives us grace to learn it. The Lord's providence in your life is always perfect. The question may come, what about the hard stuff? What about the difficult stuff? It's the Lord's providence in your life. He does all things well. He works all things for good. I realize our finite minds, especially in a period of grief, in a season of grief, cannot fully wrap around that, but that does not negate the truth of Scripture at all. He is the judge of all the earth, and what's the confession after that declaration? He will do right. 
When we begin to question the goodness of God and his workings of providence in our lives, then we find ourselves to be on very shaky ground, slippery slope, whatever you want to call it. The right attitude for the Christian to have is to accept the things the Lord brings. Good, bad, calls for rejoicing, calls for tears. Receive them from the Lord, knowing that he is working them on our account and our behalf. So these are what I'm calling the preliminary considerations before we get into the life of Samson. Another thing to notice out of these verses, and this struck me and it was pointed out to me again as I was reading and studying, I want you to notice beginning in verse 7, the rapid fire mentioning of death. Jephthah judged Israel six years and he died. After him, Isben died. After him, Elon died. After him, Abdon died. Even with Samson, if you go over to the 16th chapter and look at verses 30 and 31, we know how he dies and his great exploit at death. But verse 31 tells us his brothers and his fathers came down and took him and buried him. And whatever else you hear about any man, woman, you are sure to, if you live long enough and the Lord tarries in his return, you are sure to hear that they died. That's a given. That's a fact that we need to reconcile in our own hearts and minds. It's a little easier, I suppose, as we get older. The, the fragile nature of the body begins to show itself a little more visibly. But you young people, hear me. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. You will not be the one that lives forever. You may think it. And you may feel it. But you will not be the one that breaks through the bars of death. Given enough time and the Lord tarrying in his return, what we read of Jephthah, Isban, Elon, Abdon, Samson, and every other person in the scriptures, the day of your death and the day of mine will certainly come. That brings us to a nice point of contrast. Let me read you something from Hebrews chapter 7. So far, we've read that cycle. The judge will show up on the scene. He'll, he will, in, the, in Deborah, of course, they will perform their duties, and then the Lord takes them off the scene. But in Hebrews chapter 7, we're contrasted here with the true judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, also the writer of Hebrews says there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, continues forever. For he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
Such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. One of the things that we've tried to do throughout each look at these judges is to show how Christ, the greater judge, is portrayed in comparison to them. Certainly, we can't miss this comparison. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus did, of course, die once in the scriptures, but he was raised again according to the power of God, settling the accounts of his own, making them righteous in the sight of God. So here this high priest, this heavenly judge, lives forever. We will not read again of his death. That should be a cause for rejoicing in all of us. But before we begin with Samson, one more thing to point out to you, and it's in the first verse. If you don't notice it upon first reading, when I bring it to your attention, it will jump out at you. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the familiar refrain, right? The evil is not described here as it is elsewhere, but we know that the evil here is going after false gods, worshiping pagan gods, and not worshiping the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's not new either. This is part of the judgment of God, the consequence of their sin, the Lord delivering them into the hands of a foreign nation and hard-pressing them in service. And then immediately we run right into the second verse where it begins to talk about Manoah and his children, his wife, excuse me, his wife that had borne no children, and the angel of God that appeared to them and announced Samson's birth. So what's missing between verse 1 and 2? What's missing is the cry of the people. That's also been part of the pattern up to this point. The Lord would bring consequence for their sin and some years would pass and they would feel the hard servitude that the Lord had placed them under and they would begin to cry out to the Lord. Now, We've studied several cycles by now and we've made the assumption that their repentance was lacking and the cry was really only the cry of misery, but yet the Lord heard that cry of misery and acted on their behalf. So what does he do when there is no cry? What does he do when a people are content to be under tyranny? And I say that based upon the 11th verse of chapter 15. 3,000 men of Judah go down to the cleft of the rock and they say to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? Doesn't it seem there in that verse that there is a contentment there with them to be under the tyranny of the Philistines? I think it's important that we note here that there is no cry, but yet God acts for them anyway. He does indeed give grace greater than all our sin. And this should be cause for us to be thankful here. 
when you consider and contemplate what if the Lord only helped you and gave you grace when you asked for it? When we had enough sense to seek his help. What if he only gave you and me grace then? We would be of all men most pitiable and miserable. If the dispensing of grace and mercy was based solely upon our asking, surely many times over in your life and in mine, the Lord has done for us and helped us and given us grace and mercy in situations and circumstances that we did not even know we needed help in. That seems to be the case here with Samson. That is grace. That is mercy. And perhaps sometimes days or weeks, years later, the Lord opens your eyes to the situation. You didn't ask, you didn't even realize the trouble that you were in, but I was gracious to you anyway. That's the setting of, of Samson. That's the grace and mercy of God. Giving his people what they don't deserve and what in this case they did not even ask for. This brings another thing to the forefront. Where is the initiative in this account? And I think it carries over to God's dealings with us. The initiative is in the heart of God. The beginning is in the heart of God. The beginnings of grace is in the heart and the mercy and the compassion of God. If we were to go around the room this morning and, and we were to give a testimony of our salvation, probably the overwhelming majority would say something like this. I was not looking for God when he found me. He did it. He was the instigator. He was the shepherd that came and found this lost, wandering sheep stuck headlong in a ditch and he pulled me out and he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a name and he let me know his name I heard his voice and I came running to him the initiative of God for years, generations perhaps we've had things set on their head and we've robbed God of glory and we've exalted man into a position that he never should have been in salvation is indeed of the Lord beginning, middle, end any stage else you want to put in there salvation is of the Lord so now we get into the second verse Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them to the Philistines. There was a man, and notice this, a certain man. <laughs> this was no spectacular man either. He's not addressed like, like Gideon or even Jephthah as a mighty man of valor. He's just a certain dude, and the Lord singles him out. 
And he's not even from a strong or spectacular tribe. He's from the tribe of Dan. He's a Danite. His name was Manoah, and he had a barren wife. The angel of the Lord, probably a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, an angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, and here's the, the parallels with Elizabeth and Mary and Hannah and others. An angel appearing, indeed, indeed now you are barren and have borne no children. That's a clear statement of fact. Couldn't be denied. But then the interjection of grace, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Notice how God so sets the stage where he has to receive the glory for this. A certain man, insignificant, a barren wife from a small tribe, insignificant in every detail, point, and turn. And yet God says, with these two, these two right here, I'm going to do a miraculous thing. You, yes, you shall conceive and bear a son. He's speaking to the wife, and her, her name is not even given. She's just Manoah's wife, a barren woman. You shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for he sh the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Nazarite, you can go in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, and you can see there that there was a vow that could be made before the Lord. The interesting thing with Samson is he didn't make the vow. The vow, in a sense, was made for him while he was yet to even be in his mother's womb. And just a side note here, in case you needed another place in the scriptures to turn, to point to the sanctity of life, surely you have it right here. And notice what is said of him. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband. And she says to him, and she gives a faithful record, a man of God came to me and his, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. The King James word here is probably better because we overuse awesome. We don't even really understand what it means anymore. The word here is terrible. Reverent. The sight of him filled her with dread. That's what is trying to be gotten across here. But I did not ask him where he was from. He did not tell me his name. Take note of that because it will come up again. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And then Manoah, the father, if we take this verse out of context, it's a good verse for any parent. 
when he prays, O Lord, please let the man of God you sent come to us again and teach us what to do for the child who will be born. I think any first-time parent has wanted to claim those words for his own, right? Oh, please tell me, show me, what do I do with this child? But back in the context, it's Manoah hearing these words from his barren wife. And he prays. He wants to hear from this same man of God. He wants to hear for himself. And and the miraculous thing here in verse 9 is that God listened to his voice. There was no chastisement. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her, so what does she do? She runs to get him. She ran in haste and told her husband, says, look, the man who came to me the other day was just now appeared to me again. So he arose and followed his wife. Where he came to the man, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, yes, I am. Manoah says, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and of his work? And notice the Lord just gives again for the third time now, not directly answering the question, but just making his will known again. Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And so now Manoah's heard it for himself. He responds like we would most likely all respond and wanting to give honor or a gift to this man. He says, please, I'm going to paraphrase a few things here. He says, please stay with us. And let us cook you a meal. We'll prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord replied, It says, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But you offer a burnt offering. If you do, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not yet know that he was the angel of the Lord. And remember the confession of the wife earlier. He didn't tell me his name. He's just a man of God or the angel of God. And so in verse 17, Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. That was the mark of a prophet, right? His words would come to pass and Manoah wanted to know the name. So he probably could record it and tell his son. And the prophet so-and-so came to us. He said this, it came to pass But notice the response of the Lord. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? The Lord doesn't say here that his name is wonderful, though that's a name that Isaiah would ascribe to the Lord in chapter 9, verse 6. But here this is a description of his name. The word literally means incomprehensible. The King James says here, seeing that it is secret, it's unknowable. The other significant place that this word is used in the scriptures is in Psalm 139. Let me read it for you. 
We're familiar with Psalm 139, at least the beginning. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. My, you understand my thought from afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. This is David contemplating the intimate knowledge that the Lord has for him, knows his thoughts, his words, when he stands up, when he sits down. He knows, he knows what path he's taking, all of his ways. What is David's response? He says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. Incomprehensible. It's secret. That's what the Lord says to Manoah. And we can almost hear the words of, of Christ to his disciples at a certain point in time echoing, I have more things to say to you, but you can't bear it. <laughs> that's, also, that's almost what he's saying to Manoah. If I told you my name, which is a revelation of my character, if I revealed to you who I was, You couldn't stand it. It is too wonderful for you. And so what does Manoah do? He takes the young goat, offers it up on the altar to the Lord, and he, the angel or man of God, did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. That's a right and fitting and proper response, isn't it? When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And he responds with the little bit of information that he has concerning the Lord. We've seen him. Now we're going to die. We shall surely die because we have seen God. But, thankfully, he had a level-headed wife who reasoned through the situation. And she says, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering. Nor would he have shown us these things. Nor would he have told us such things as the, at this time. So this is where Samson comes upon the scene. And this, this is a, an interesting detail. The scriptures don't speak to it, so we have to be careful. Samson's name most likely is the name of a pagan god. It means sunny. S-U-N-N-Y. Most likely this young boy is named after a pagan sun god. The Lord didn't tell them what to name him. They named him Samson. But notice in verse 24 the particulars. 
the woman bore a son. The barren woman bore a son. Called his name Samson. The child grew. The Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Isn't that very similar to the details concerning the Lord Jesus? It's interesting. If you go to verse 1 of chapter 14, Samson's all grown up and looking for a wife. <laughs> so it goes from the announcement of his birth to his search for a wife. And in that, again, he is, his account is similar to the Lord Jesus. We have just a very few details of the boy Jesus, age 12, in the temple. And, and fairly the same things are said. The child grew in stature and in favor with God and men. It's not worded the same way, but it's along the same lines. The woman bore a son, called his name Samson. The child grew. The Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. So the Lord has come full circle with what he said to this, remember, this certain man and his barren wife, who found themselves as being part of the people of God under the heavy hand of the Philistines. Not crying out for mercy, not begging for mercy, not repenting of their sins, not even miserable enough to seek the grace of God, yet God gives it in abundance to them. And Daryl Block has said this in his commentary and I agree with him. He says, the conception and birth of Samuel declare emphatically God's refusal to let this nation die. Again, where's the initiative? In the heart of God. From beginning to end with Samson, it was God declaring that he refused to give his people over ultimately and finally to the Philistines. Please hear this as I conclude. In weeks coming, we'll, we'll go through all the accounts of Samson, his, the lion, the honey, and the carcass, and, and Delilah, and his death. We'll go through all of that, but please don't miss this one important point. There is a great parallel here between Samson and Christ. Just as God intervened with Samson and declared that he refused to let the nation die under the tyranny of the Philistines, so with Christ, the conception and birth of Jesus declare emphatically God's refusal to let his people die in their sins. The initiative's in the heart of God. And he would not allow his people, known to him from the beginning, from before the foundation of the, of the earth, he would not allow them to die in their sins. Nope. They weren't crying out and begging for mercy either. But there appeared Jesus on the scene, born of a virgin, miraculously conceived, and it said of Samson, I'll remind you, he will 
begin to deliver? Who finishes it? The Lord, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, finally, fully delivers his people out of oppression. The Philistines here are just a type of the tyranny and oppression of sin and Satan. The Lord raises up Samson to defeat it all. The Lord raises up Christ to defeat sin once for all. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us in those early chapters that Jesus Christ by himself, all alone, didn't need any help, by himself purged our sins and then sat down at the right hand of God. The old hymn that we sing is fitting, Hallelujah, what a Savior. So as we go through the story of, of Samson, look for Jesus. You'll see him in his work. And then when we approach the New Testament, it's all unfolded. Those types and shadows are unveiled as we read the pages of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these moments we could consider your word together this morning. Lord, I trust it's been a profitable and fruitful time in our heart as we consider the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his unfailing character as the judge of all the earth. We're most thankful that we will never again read the account of his death, for he ever lives to make intercession for us. Death prevents him from doing nothing. We're also thankful this morning to be reminded of the frailty of life. Lord, I pray that your initiative in hearts and minds would be made known this morning, that you would open eyes, open ears, that some who are not even looking, not crying out for mercy, not begging for deliverance or relief, not fully comprehending the dire situation that they are in, Lord, that you would make yourself known to them. That you would make yourself known to certain men, certain women, certain boys and girls. We're thankful for your grace, for your mercy. We're thankful that you are filled with both. That grace has been poured upon your lips. We're thankful for the salvation that we enjoy at your great expense. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.